and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 90, Fortunes Change. Last time, on August 12th, the escorts and aircraft of Operation Pedestal had been doing an admirable job of protecting the merchantmen and the tanker, yet Force Z, the balance of those ships, were about to turn around and head back west. Whatever came at the supply ships afterward would have to be dealt with by the remaining cruisers, destroyers, and whatever planes could come from Malta. Problem was, something was coming. Something big. About 30 miles ahead of the convoy, Axis aircraft and naval vessels were gathering, building their strength. Firstly, to take out the supply ships, but also to hopefully deliver a blow to the retreating escorts, the carriers being the prime targets. However, the British were not content to let events play out this way. Though having difficulties through repetitive use for the last few days, 22 aircraft were sent up by the carriers and sent on ahead to disrupt the building air power of Germany and Italy. As for the Axis plans, whatever merchant ships survived this latest coming air attack, they would be finished off by Italian subs the next morning further east, and if there were still survivors after the subs, they would be sunk by the vessels of Admiral Dezara, which is why Force Z, now heading west, had to be bloodied, to make sure Dezara had little in the way of opposition when his turn came. The coming air attack was mostly of Italian aircraft, though the Germans would be lending a hand, coming in two groups, but timed so that they all arrived together in an overwhelming attack. The Italians' plan was simple, but potentially devastating, if it could be pulled off. Coming at pedestal would be most of what the Regia Aeronautica had in the area. 22 torpedo bombers, covered by fighters, 14 dive bombers with their own fighter escort, and 40 high-level bombers, again with their own protection. They would all hit the convoy, overwhelm the escort's defensive capabilities, and begin the process of eliminating the main reason for the convoy, the merchantmen. And yet, the Italians did not get the coordination they sought. The British crews were not the only ones working hard for the last 12 hours, at breakneck speed, with little or no rest, and food stuffed into their mouths when they could. Some of the Italian fighters had participated in attacks earlier that day and were supposed to come back, refuel, and then join in on the large afternoon attack. But more of them were damaged than expected, and those lost fighters were supposed to protect the high-level bombers. But not to be put off, as it was determined that this was the least effective form of attack, they, the high-level bombers, were called off. Suddenly, the approaching air attack was now less overwhelming, and that had been the whole point. To compensate for this now-missing aspect of the attack, more dive bombers were added into the mix, as they had their fighter escort intact. Joining the fray would be the only true Italian dive bomber force in the area that had their own JU-87s. The Italian crews had been trained by German pilots. Yet the commander of this group 
102 Grupo did not like the idea of committing all of his precious JU-87s to an attack that, to his mind, needed more fighter protection. Playing the political game, the commander was allowed to hold back some of his dive bombers. Now only nine of his JU-87s would be joining in on the attack. True, the Axis had discovered that, really, only dive bombers and torpedo bombing had given them any positive results in attacking the Commonwealth forces, but now the attack seemed, again, less powerful. Pedestal's 22 fighters were on their way to engage the large formation when Vice Admiral Seifert notified all ships of the convoy that Force X would be turning around at 7.15 p.m. The first wave of German bombers had planned on attacking the convoy when the Italians made their attack, hoping the confusion would allow them to get in and inflict significant damage. In this German group were 20 Stukas, being protected by numerous Messerschmitt 109s and 110s. The 22 British aircraft of the fleet air arm, though outnumbered and outclassed, nevertheless flew into the German and Italian air formations. Their goal was to get past the fighter escorts and take out the bombers. But that was going to be a tall order. The battle over the oncoming Axis bombers started in earnest at 6 p.m. As the torpedo bombers were spotted first, the Sea Hurricanes of Victorious's 885 Squadron zeroed in on them. Lieutenant Patterson saw four bombers, but that one of them was further behind than it should have been. This was the opening he had been hoping for. Turning his fighter right at the lagging bomber, Patterson waited until he was 150 yards from the enemy before unleashing his guns. Right away, the bomber blazed and lost altitude. However, the other planes of the formation started firing at him. His rudder was quickly damaged, which forced him to peel away. So far, it was a fair exchange. One damaged plane for another. Meanwhile, Patterson's compatriot, Sub-Lieutenant Thompson, spotted another group of four bombers. He was at 6,500 feet, they about 1,000 feet below him. Diving down, actually going lower than the bombers, Thompson then pulled up and let out a six-second burst on the closest bomber's underside. Within seconds, Thompson was gratified by the telltale sign of black smoke, with the bomber then rolling over on its back, heading toward the sea. As Thompson was still in a solid kill position, the other three bombers dropped their bombs and dived to gain speed and head for home. By then, the bomber's seven escorts had figured out what was going on, so set upon the lone attacker. Within seconds, a horrendous dogfight ensued. Through the melee, Thompson sent one of them diving towards the sea, but the rest were closing in on him. Just then, other British fighters arrived and gave Thompson enough room to get away. Regardless of Patterson's and Thompson's relative success, the escorts around the main bomber group were such that the carrier's fighters could not penetrate them. By 6.35 p.m., these Axis bombers were over the convoy. The first to attack were the torpedo boats, who had broken into two groups. 
The first unit approaching from the starboard side were immediately shocked by the volume of barrage fire coming at them. Panicking, some of the first group dropped their torpedoes 3,000 yards away, thus almost guaranteeing that nothing would be hit. However, some of the pilots stayed on target. Yet their fish had no better luck. The group then headed for home. As for the lone Italian crew that had JU-87s, their nine planes were harassed by some of the carrier's fighters as well. Yet the JU's 28 escorts of Maquis MC-202s kept the fighters from closing in. When the Italian fighters got home, they claimed to have shot down seven British fighters, which was a patent lie, or a massive misunderstanding of what had occurred. Had the claim been true, the British defensive position would have been devastated. The Italian fighter pilots hailed as heroes. The JU-87s, with their escorts, made their way to the convoy. By now, they had split into two groups to increase their chances of sinking a merchantman. But again, the destroyer and cruiser escorts threw up an impressive barrage. The Italian crews were forced to fly higher than desired, and now the sun was in their eyes. What's more, a mist had arisen, which made the ships below harder to see. Still, the bomber groups estimated that they had reached the convoy, so went into their dives from 4,000 meters. Not until they were closer could they determine which shadow was what ship, so chose their targets during the dive, an impressive feat, which was only allowed by their training. The two groups followed their leaders in. One captain had an oil leak, hence his windscreen was blotted out. But not wanting to waste his flight, he stuck his head out of the side. Only his goggles allowed him to still see with the wind rushing into his face. Waiting until he was very low, the captain released his bombs. Though he was unsure of which kind of ship he was attacking, his bombs landed true, and there were explosions and fire as a result. The captain leveled out, but then found himself coming right at the funnels of a cruiser. He turned immediately and barely missed the ship. When he got home, he was told that an AA shell had passed through one of his propellers. Somehow, it had stayed together and allowed him to fly away. Some of the other bombers from the first attacking group went after the Nelson-class battleship Rodney. One bomber had come at the ship from directly ahead, while the others came from the starboard side. The lone bomber got there first, flying very low, and dropped a bomb not 20 yards off the port side. The bomb would have landed closer, or struck home, had not the captain ordered a starboard full rudder at the last moment. Yet, all was for naught for the Italian, as the bomb did not explode. The other bombers were coming in despite the intense barrage fire, but clearly they were shaken up, as many of them did not press home their attack, despite flying right over the battleship. The bombs were dropped, yet there were no successes. The bombers then quickly climbed and left the area. The second group had a better rate of return. Bombing ships closer to them, the Italians claimed at least three hits, but most turned out to be only near misses. 
However, the destroyer Foresight was hit by a torpedo on its starboard side. Flooding was immediate, and though the main engines were intact, the steering gear was unresponsive. The destroyer Tartar pulled up near the wounded Foresight to offer protection from any further bombing. The convoy continued on past. Permission was asked to also have the destroyer Penn stay with the uncontrollable ship to look out for subs. Yet Rear Admiral Burrow replied in the negative. The priority was the convoy. Lieutenant Commander Fell of the Foresight understood. Yet the real access success that day was made by 12 JU-87s who came in almost at the same time as the Italians. Taking advantage of the seconds delay in their attack, the Germans came out of the sun's glare through the smoke of the AK-AK guns to make for the carrier indomitable. Starting their dive at 10,000 feet, there was a precise two-second delay in between each plane as it turned and dove. To be sure, Indomitable had all of its guns pointed at the falling Stukas, and the nearby Phoebe should have added her might to the attempted deflection. Yet her guns were trained on some of the Italian bombers. One by one, the Germans dropped their 1,000-pound bombs and then pulled up and away. One bomb hit its mark close to the forward lift, passed through the upper gallery deck, and then exploded just above the hangar deck, which now had a hole 20 by 12 feet. Fire quickly spread, which made its way to the hangar holding shells for the two 4.5-inch turrets. Then those shells started exploding. The second bomb landed further to the back of the ship. Again, the upper galley was penetrated, with the bomb going off just above the upper hangar deck. A large section of the upper deck was twisted, and the flight deck now had a 16-foot hole. This explosion caused a fire as well in the torpedo room, but fortunately there was no resulting secondary explosions. Three other bombs dropped were near misses, but their splinter damage was considerable. The side plating between the upper and lower gallery decks was wrecked. A section 40 feet by 20 was pushed in, 25 feet below the waterline causing those compartments to flood, along with significant splinter holes just above the waterline. As the Stukas pulled away, Indomitable could not be seen by those around her through the smoke and disturbed waves, but as a combatant, she was out of action for the foreseeable future. The forward lift, the guns of A-1 and A-2 were destroyed. The rear lift was also out of action, but perhaps fixable. As for the loss of life, that was much more severe. During the attack, those in the wardroom and manning the port guns were killed, totaling some six officers and 44 men, with another 59 seriously wounded. Right away, black smoke started emerging from the flight deck, and the ship was not under control. Eventually, she would turn west and slowly crawl away. Those who witnessed the attack were sure the ship would not survive. Just after the attack, the Charybdis and the destroyers Lookout, Lightning, and Somali made for Indomitable to help out if possible. By 714, Lookout was the closest ship as her crew tried to help with the fires. Within 16 minutes, the fires were out, and the carrier's captain 
Trowbridge reported to Seifert that Indomitable could make 17 knots. Even more incredibly, within the hour, she was up to 28 knots. Though unable to launch, Indomitable stayed with Force Z. As for the wounded carrier's aircraft, they would now have to be settled on the sister carrier, Victorious. Between 6.50 and 7.30 p.m., as the last of the fires were extinguished on Indomitable, the aircraft of both carriers were landed on Victorious, except for one marlet, which had run out of fuel and had to ditch into the sea. The pilot was rescued by the Zetlin. Now every available space on the Victorious was packed with planes. This would never do for future swift operations. Thus, several of the damaged sea hurricanes were dumped over the side. Seifert's plan had been to launch four aircraft from each carrier to shield Force X that would accompany the convoy as it continued east, but by now that was clearly impossible. As for the merchant ships themselves, once again, none were seriously damaged or sunk. Slowly, the radar cleared of enemy fighters. Given all that had happened, the damage to Indomitable, the downing of numerous enemy planes, previously the loss of the carrier Eagle, Seifert knew he had to stick to the plan. Malta mattered more than all else. So at 6.55 p.m., the majority of the escorts turned west and headed away. Seifert wished the ongoing vessels Godspeed, and firmly believed that, as the Axis had shot their bolt that day with such massive air attacks, that they were done. This would give Pedestal and Force X at least a calm start. He was wrong. Just before the heavies turned back west, the Victorious, though dealing with its own damage, launched four fighters. Their job was to go ahead of Pedestal and, hopefully, cause mayhem for the Axis ships coming together. But the air fleet fighters ran into German fighters, trying to make their own late-day raid. The British traded one of their own fighters for one of the enemy, but the contest had used up their fuel. The three remaining turned for home. Just after 8 p.m., four more fighters were launched. Their job was to maintain a station over the convoy, but as darkness finally came, they too were forced to land. To be sure, Seifert was not altogether abandoning Pedestal, as his ships made for the North African coast just above Tunisia. This would allow them to launch fighters the next day, should they be needed. Yet Seifert's own strength, Force Z itself, was reduced. His more seriously wounded, indomitable, Rodney, and ethereal were to head back for Gibraltar right away, escorted by five destroyers. Though this put his at some risk, he could rightly guess that the Axis would focus primarily on the ships heading to Malta. Pedestal, with its reduced escorts, the merchantmen and the oil tanker Ohio, continued on, coming ever closer to the deadly Skirki Bank a shallow area between Sicily and Tunisia. Its shallowness would force the large British ships to go through well-known channels, where the enemy could simply wait for them. Strangely, the Axis did not figure out what was going on for another 35 minutes after the fleet split apart. But once it did, plans were made, not for the morrow, but now.
At 7 p.m., another 35 German aircraft, Junkers and Heinkels, were lifting off from Sicily. That day of August 12th, the aircraft of Malta did all they could to keep an eye on the ever-moving and ever-growing Axis ships leaving Italian ports. The port Taranto was watched, as was the sea lanes between Sardinia and Sicily. Photos of the major Italian ports were taken, and Italian ships were spotted heading north, the British guessed, to join up with the 7th Division to launch an overwhelming attack. Meanwhile, Axis subs and e-boats were spotted heading south to put themselves into the path of the oncoming convoy. During the day of the 12th, Malta also kept a strike force of 15 Beauforts and 15 Beaufighters on station in case an opportunity presented itself. But as the Italians firmly believed that there were many more fighters now on Malta, they did not allow any of their ships to go south of the island. This misconception would cost the Italians dearly. And yet the Italians were satisfied with the events of August 11th and 12th, mostly because of their exaggerated kill claims. In fact, the Italians believed, and most certainly wanted to believe, that all four British carriers were either sunk or put out of action. And with this thinking, maybe it was possible to sink pedestal and to go after Seifert's force, believed to now be heading west. What's more, the British diversionary force of Rear Admiral Vian in the eastern Mediterranean failed to take any pressure off of pedestal. Vian split his forces on the evening of August 11th, as planned, with the bulk of them going back to Alexandria, while a few went to attack Rhodes. Yet, besides the British and Italians exchanging ineffectual attacks, nothing of note took place. So, with Seifert's Force Z heading west by southwest, and Pedestal continuing to head east, Sir Keith Park and Vice Admiral Leatham, back on Malta, had their own worries to brood over. As watched over by some of Malta's aircraft, the Italian cruiser squadrons of Admiral De Zara finally met up during the evening of the 12th, and altogether turned south. Their obvious target was Force X and the merchantmen. It seemed that this impressive force would engage pedestal south of Pantelleria, in the Strait of Sicily. Yet Admiral Leatham felt strongly that those destroyers and cruisers accompanying the supply ships could handle the challenge. As to whether this would have been the case will never be known, as one Axis sub deciding to take on the British and achieving incredible success changed the entire scenario in Dazara's favor. Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 91, Darkness Settles Over Pedestal. For all of the fighting that had thus transpired, the Italians had, all along, planned a decisive attack for when the reduced convoy made its way through the Sicilian Channel, the waterway between Tunisia and Sicily. At the southern end, where the channel was deepest, the convoy ships would be forced to travel through there, 
as numerous mines had been put out to the north. Yet these shoals and coastal hazards of the Tunisian coast, along with its ever-shifting sandbars, created an even more slender passageway, thus giving the access an obvious but unchangeable ambush point. The light forces of the Italian Navy, their E-boats, would use this narrow passage lane to make their attack, as their lighter and more shallow holes allowed them freedom of maneuver. What's more, the coastline and other natural obstructions nearby would negate the escort's radar watch and their Aztecs, trying to detect them and the subs. On the morning of August 12th, five Italian submarines had positioned themselves along the northern entrance to the Sicilian Channel. But by dusk, another second line of 19 motor torpedo boats had joined them. Even more, the Germans were sending six of their own torpedo boats from Crete at top speed. At 7.46 p.m., Force X began to enter the northern approaches to the channel. As they did, they assumed their new formation. Yet, unbeknownst to the men of Pedestal, they had been attacked just ten minutes earlier. The Italian submarine Desi, ahead of the approaching convoy, spied through its periscope 24 ships, 14 steamers, and 10 destroyers. The Italian captain Scandola watched as the ships, rather impressively, he thought, zigzagged in unison, but kept coming at him. Getting a better impression of the convoy's formation, Scandola counted three destroyers on the convoy's left side, two on its right, and several behind it. Two more destroyers were in front, but more to the north, so not directly in between the merchantman and his sub. At 7.38, Scandala attacked, launching four bow torpedoes at two of the steamers. Not wanting to be caught by the swift-acting destroyers, once they knew an enemy was about, the sub dove down 40 meters. Within less than a minute, two explosions could be heard. But the sub's hydrophone could not pick up if any of the ships had stopped, or mostly slowed down, an indication that they had been hit. Scandala decided to attack again, but then came a general depth charge attack. It is now known that the British had no idea of Scandala's presence, or that he had just launched four fish at them. They were just trying to scare away any potential attackers. The convoy moved on now altering its formation. The British were also unaware of a second Italian sub nearby, the Axum, led by Captain Farini. He had actually spotted the ships earlier, but was biding his time, waiting for a solid chance of scoring a hit. Letting the British ships get ahead of him, Farini followed the convoy, getting ever closer, all the while choosing his first target. As the ships were going in a southeasterly direction, the Axum was about to parallel them, now on their left side, to the north. Once he was within 8,000 meters, Farini looked through his periscope. The merchantmen were in three lines, with two escorts in front and the rest on either side, with one destroyer now bringing up the rear. At 7.37 p.m., the Axum was within 4,000 meters. It was then he turned to the right to face the side of the convoy and launch his attack. Firing all four tubes, four bow torpedoes were sent out. 
tube one, tube four, tube three, and finally, number two. Farini's idea was to hit one of the outside escort ships closest to him and two of the merchantmen. Not only would this create a hole for him to get closer for a follow-up attack, but as two of the civilian ships would be damaged, confusion would result. By the time the torpedoes were launched, the Axum was only 1,300 meters from the outer line and 1,800 meters from the closest line of supply ships. Sixty-three seconds after firing his fish, Farini heard the first explosion, and then two more. The Axum dove for protection, and four and a half minutes later, the depth charge attacks started. What Farini could not know was that all four of his torpedoes had found a target. First, there was Rear Admiral Burroughs' flagship, the Nigeria, in the lead of the leftmost line. Behind it, and in the same line, was the anti-aircraft ship, the Cairo. She was the second ship to be struck. Lastly was the lone tanker, the Ohio. It shuddered under the explosion. All three vessels came to a halt. The formation, still in transition, became a jumbled mess. Confusion did reign. The Nigeria had been hit first. She had been traveling at 14 knots when the impact came. The torpedo hit near the foremast and under the platform deck. The twisted metal was some 40 feet long on the port side. Every compartment near the strike zone was severely damaged and now flooded. Instantly, four officers and 48 men were killed. Two more were seriously injured, but pulled from the wreckage. Ironically, fighter cover was near the convoy, when the attack came. Several fighters had just come into VHF range when they tried to signal the Nigeria, the fighter control ship. But when the torpedo struck, the electronics on the ship went out. Contact could not be made. The fighters crawled around for a while, but then left, as they could not find their charges. Nigeria listed to port 15 degrees at first, but then continued on to 17 degrees. And as the steering gear was now jammed, the Nigeria started a slow circling to port. Yet the crew went to work. Fires were put out, the electronics were brought back, and pumping reduced the listing to only four degrees. All this took 14 minutes. But the Nigeria had suffered other damage that would negate its ability to continue on to Malta. The lower steering position was beyond repair, as were its six main armaments, and two of its transmitting rooms were wrecked. Rear Admiral Burl calmly received the damage assessment and knew he had to abandon ship. As soon as Nigeria had been hit, the destroyers Ashanti, Bicester, and Wilton closed in on her to give aid. At 8.15 p.m., Burl transferred his command to the Ashanti. The devastated Nigeria was sent back to Gibraltar, under the protection of Wilton and Bicester. When the cruiser Cairo was hit, she had been traveling at eight knots. Then two of Farini's torpedoes found her. As the fish hit the Cairo near its stern, or rear, the port propeller was completely taken off. Right away, the stern started to sink, as water poured into the lower compartments. There was a quick discussion of having another ship tow her back to Gibraltar as well, but Burrow decided against it, 
He had just lost two escorts. Another one could not be paired off for such an assignment. The Cairo had also lost 23 crew members, and again, two more were seriously injured. Two Hunt-class destroyers came alongside to take off the crew, but it was the destroyer Pathfinder that had the unenviable order to sink the crippled ship. Yet even this mundane but dreadful task was not so easy. The Pathfinder fired off four torpedoes, but three of them missed this stationary target. Only then did the crew of the Pathfinder discover their targeting mechanism was off. Then more of Pathfinder's fish struck the Cairo, but she still refused to go down. Time was wasting, so a depth charge was let off right next to the Cairo. However, the 23-year-old vessel refused to go down. Eventually, the guns of the Derwent forced the old lady under the waves. As for the lone tanker, the Ohio, she had been hit by one torpedo near the pump room, which was now open to the sea. An immense fire could be seen coming from the damaged tanker. The crew near the pump room was brought upside as the fire quickly spread. Kerosene tanks had their lids blown off, shooting into the sky. Fortunately, the engines were still under control, but who knew how long that would last? To be safe, the engines were cut to assess the damage. The men on the nearby Nigeria could see the 24 by 27 foot hole in the Ohio and assumed she was a goner. Then, as the fire spread, the men on the Nigeria could feel the heat hitting their faces. This only reaffirmed their belief. Yet suddenly, the flames disappeared as the seawater rushed in, snuffing them out. Now that the fire was under control, the crew got to work, effecting repairs. Believing that the Ohio was lost, some of the men had rushed to the boats and lowered them into the water. But as too many boarded one, it turned over, the men disappearing into the ever-darkening waters. Yet most of the crew kept at their stations, dealing with the various problems. Within the hour, the engines were brought back to life. The Ohio was now capable of 17 knots. Burrow ordered the mine-sweeping destroyer, the Intrepid, to take the lead and search for enemy subs. The Icarus and Fury joined the Intrepid as she moved forward to lead the convoy through the narrowest part of the channel. Yet even with the Intrepid's indicators set at 40 feet below the surface, this part of the journey would have been very dodgy had it not been for Lieutenant Powell from the home fleet, who had been loaned for this very assignment. He had traveled this route many times. By now, Vice Admiral Seifert was far away, but when he got the report of the damage done to the Nigeria, Cairo, and Ohio, he immediately sent back the Charybdis, Eskimo, and Somali to make good the lost escorts. But not until 1015 did these three destroyers pass by the retreating Nigeria. As the three destroyers were on their way to the front of the convoy, the signal was given out for the merchantmen to redeploy into two columns. At that very moment, the other destroyers were either on the side of the supply ships, providing a shield from where the sub-attack came from, or were rescuing survivors. There were no escorts out in front of the convoy. It was then, at 8.35 p.m., that the last air attack planned for 
came upon pedestal. The ships were still 20 miles west of the Skerki bank. By now, the Ashanti, along with the pen, were attempting to get ahead of the supply ships, but were only catching up to its tail when the report came of the air attack. Right away, the two destroyers laid smoke, hoping to cover their charges. Yet the smoke was drifting far too slowly to help those ahead. For the approaching 30 Ju-88s and the 7 Heinkel 111 torpedo bombers, each with two 1,600-pound torpedoes, the setting sun highlighted the wakes of the ships, outlining a perfect line of targets. As for the ship's guns below, the German aircraft were only blurred things in the sky. Normally, the Heinkel had the disadvantage of having to only be 40 or 50 meters above their targets when they dropped their torpedoes from some 600 meters away. This would allow the escorts to make them pay dearly for their attack. Yet at this moment, there were no destroyers or cruisers out in front to deter them. Just before the Germans attacked, the Ohio had hastily patched up its keel, but found that the ship could only go in circles. But five minutes before the air assault came, a hand-rigged system was set up to keep her straight. The Ohio started out, but only at seven knots. Behind her, yet coming up at full speed, was the Ashanti. The Germans had spotted her, and some of the dive bombers went after the destroyer, knowing she would attempt to shield the tanker. Soon, bombs rained down, but Ashanti's captain, Onslow, had the ship weaving in and out of the falling explosives. However, one close miss caused a fire in the boiler room. Chief Simons ran up to the bridge to report the dangerous situation. Yet Captain Onslow calmly replied, while still dodging other bombs, Thank you, Chief. Please put it out. Thirty minutes later, the Chief returned, his overalls singed, his face blackened, and said, The fire was out, sir. Captain Onslow turned to him and said, What fire? Obviously, Onslow had been very busy during that time. When the Ashanti came alongside the tanker, Burrow asked its captain, Mason, if he needed a tow. The answer was negative, but he had no idea where he was going. Could the Ashanti lead the Ohio back to the convoy? But Burrow said he needed to get up front as quick as he could, so the Leadbury was ordered back, and a blue light was fixed to the destroyer's stern, which the tanker began to follow. As the two ships the escort and the tanker made an attempt to catch up. They were bombed and strafed by the German aircraft. Several men manning Ohio's guns were blown overboard. But fortunately, another destroyer, still looking for some of Nigeria's crew, found them. The Germans came from the port side with their attack. The destroyer Icarus spotted the torpedo coming at it, and in response, the order to put hard over and full speed was given. The fish passed through the ship's wake, mere feet from its stern. As for the cargo ship Empire Hope, she fought off a continuous air attack by the Germans for just over 30 minutes. The men were exhausted, but fired back every time a German plane came into range. Surviving 17 near misses, the 18th landed close enough to rip a 15-foot hole in its side. The Empire Hope came to a stop. 
Now that she was left behind, the Germans focused even more on her. Within minutes, most of the gun crews were injured or had been knocked over by close blasts. By then, at 8.50, she received two direct hits. The number four hold was soon on fire, where explosives were stored. They soon ignited, and the fire spread. Within minutes, the entire latter half of the ship was set ablaze. Captain Williams knew he could not save her, so ordered the crew to abandon ship. But many of the ship's boats were already on fire or destroyed. Still, the entire crew got safely away, and the boats or rafts were paddled away from the wrecked destroyer as she continued her slow, lazy circle. Around 9 p.m., the pen, captained by Lieutenant Commander Swain, picked up Empire Hope's crew. While this was going on, the merchant Brisbane Star was attacked by an HE-111. Its torpedo impacted to the ship's rear. Water rushed in, and the vessel came to a halt. But the crew got to work, and within 20 minutes, the star was capable of eight knots. As this information was given to the captain, the Pathfinder came alongside, and the two captains evaluated the situation. At this slow speed, the star would never catch up to the fleet. So it was decided that she would hug the Tunisian coast and use the cover of darkness to continue towards Malta. Commander Gibbs of the Pathfinder then surged ahead to help the other ships in distress. Coming upon the ammunition ship Clan Ferguson, a torpedo was launched at it at 9.01. Warnings were given. The ship attempted to dodge the fish, but could not. Moving at 15 knots when the torpedo hit, three German aircraft were approaching her from astern. It was the first of these three attackers that had launched the attack. A cruiser out in front of the ammunition ship saw the coming attack, and its forward guns tried to turn around to attack the Germans, but could not, as their training stops would not allow it. However, the cruiser's rear guns did open up upon the approaching Germans. One gun managed to hit the lead German plane, but by then it had already let loose its torpedo. When the torpedo hit, the resulting explosion was so large, the fire surging into the air, that everyone around the Ferguson stopped fighting for a moment. The flash caused many to see white spots. The flame that doomed the ship also took out the two following German aircraft. Fragments of the Ferguson rained down on nearby ships, injuring one gunner on the forward cruiser. Also in front of the now-doomed Ferguson, the Waramara pulled itself out of the line, as clearly the formation was not providing any protection. The men of the Waramara wanted to turn around and pick up survivors, but could not. They had to get to Malta. As Churchill wrote before Pedestal launched, if only one merchant ship made it all the way, the convoy would be considered a success. Though the Waramara was playing maverick, in order to survive, it stayed in nearby waters to avoid the mines laid just to the north. As for the Clan Ferguson, there had been survivors who climbed into rafts, as most of their boats were already destroyed. The men used their helmets to paddle away from the burning hulk before it could explode again. Besides, its fuel was floating away from the vessel 
still ablaze, the fire threatening everyone nearby. Another merchant, the British cargo steamer Werengi, had equally decided she would be better on her own, so broke away from the line formation. Still, an HE-111 found her and launched two torpedoes. Swinging hard to starboard, the steamer watched as the two torpedoes missed her, but barely. The destroyer Ledbury watched as all cohesion disappeared from the convoy. The closest six ships were now heading to the northwest, almost in the opposite direction of their former course. One by one, the Ledbury chased down the convoy ships and ordered them to a course of 120 degrees and told them that the three destroyers looking out for subs were just ahead, moving slowly to allow everyone to catch up. Meanwhile, the tanker Ohio had a devil of a time keeping up with the Leadbury, as its blue light seemed to disappear, only to reappear in an unexpected location. Finally, a system was worked out where the Ohio's bridge could speak directly to the men steering the ship in the rear. Slowly, the ships came together as Burrow raced through the staggered ships aboard the Ashanti to let them know that he was still alive and the mission was still on. Eventually, the Pathfinder had realigned many of the supply ships and had put them on their best speed to catch up to the warships ahead. By now, the Germans had sunk three ships and only lost the two planes. A good day's work. But for the British, August 12th was not over. Ahead of the strung-out line of ships was the Italian sub, Alaghi, she had closed in on the still-smoking Ohio and was about to finish her off when the German planes attacked. Not wanting to get hit by an errant torpedo or bomb, the Alagi backed off. The sub stayed with the nearby ships as they changed course again and again to stave off the Germans. Then the Alagi closed in on the cruiser Manchester and was about to launch torpedoes at her when more German planes closed in. Again, the sub had to back off to save itself. Finally, the Germans went away, which allowed the Alagi to get ahead of the closest ships, to allow them to come to it. That way, Alagi could not be detected as its movements were minimized. Picking the largest ship nearby, which happened to be the cruiser Kenya, the Alagi fired off four torpedoes. But immediately, the sub and its fish were spotted by the merchant ship Port Chalmers and a lookout aboard the Kenya. The cruiser's helm was put hard over, which caused three of the torpedoes to miss, but not the fourth. The successful fish hit the ship forward, flooding all the nearby compartments and taking out its echo-sounding equipment. It was 9.12 p.m. The Kenya managed to maintain convoy speed, and soon caught up to the Manchester. Those two were eventually joined by the Ashanti and Pathfinder, as the Kenya effected repairs. Commander Gibbs of the Pathfinder reported to Burrow that the merchant ships were strung out behind them. Burrow sent the Pathfinder back to round them up, as already covered. The sub, Alagi, made good its escape. To the rear of Burrow, the various supply ships were now scattered, in small groups. The Warangi found the Ameria Likes, and they soon came upon the Waramara, 
Together they formed their own line and continued on. As for the tanker Ohio, she managed to stay behind Ledbury, and together they passed by the burning hulk of the Clan Ferguson at 11.48 p.m. Not long after this, the Italian sub Brosno spotted the Ferguson and finished her off. If the sub had come just a few minutes earlier, her prize or prizes could have been much greater indeed. The vessels of pedestal, scattered out as they were, unsure of who was still alive and still afloat, continued on in whatever groups they were in. The head of that line passed by Cape Bon, the tip of Tunisia closest to Sicily, at 11.54 p.m. But still ahead of them, waiting, were the e-boat squadrons. <laughs> 